Let us turn in Hebrews, please, chapter 11. I'll read verse 32 again. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets and so on unto the end of the chapter. Now here at the start of verse 32, we have another one of those indicators that Hebrews was first of all and primarily a sermon that was preached and proclaimed. You notice he does not say, what shall I more write? What shall I more say? And he doesn't say, space fails me, as if the text of the page is too small. He says, time fails me. It's a sermon, and there are other indicators like this. It's different from the ordinary epistles of Paul. This is a preacher more than a writer. Every preacher feels the constraints of time. And Paul is under such constraints. And it is now fitting that he should leave this hall of faith. And make his exit into chapter 12. But before he does so, he writes this great closing and concluding passage to this portion of his homily. And from this passage, I want to leave with you four things that we can learn from this. We learn, first of all, that the witnesses of faith, their deeds, their sufferings, are innumerable, can't be counted. Not only does he imply that by what he says in the closing here, by saying it, he invites us to go on into the hall of fame and continue there ourselves. There's too much here for one sermon, he says. Time fails me. What can I more say? I have to leave. And there's so many more rooms to go into. So many more saints to tell you about. So many more deeds of faith. So many more sufferings of the righteous in their faith. There's so much to tell you. And I could say far, far more. And Paul invites you to to continue on in your own time in the Old Testament scriptures and to examine the rooms in the hall of faith. He just notices the, the name on the door on his way out. Just some titles on the door on his way out. But he can't bring us in the way he did with Abraham and the way he did with Noah and the way he did with Enoch. He just notices the the names on the door as he passes out. But in doing so, he's telling you, you go in. You go in in your own time. You go in when you go home. You do the study yourself. There are other great worthies of faith. There's no shortage of saints to study. And there's no shortage of deeds of faith to recollect and to meditate upon. The cloud of witnesses, that's what he calls these people of faith. The cloud of witnesses, the vast cloud of witnesses. Go on in and study every droplet of moisture as it pictures a living saint. You know, congregation, Paul is telling us we're surrounded by multitudes, multitudes of believers. Men and women of faith, many of them are living in glory 
but multitudes to study and to reflect upon and to follow their lives and deeds. And not only is it the Old Testament where there are multitudes of these saints, but now we have the New Testament too and 2,000 years of church history. Multitudes of saints. A great multitude that the Bible says no man can number of all kindreds and peoples and tongues and nations and many of them are standing before the throne of God right at this time. Multitudes. Didn't he say earlier on there in the, in the epistle, verse 12, the stars of the sky in multitude as a sand by the seashore. He, he's giving a hint. There are multitudes. It's an innumerable host. And every one of these witnesses of faith, innumerable as they are, all of them have deeds and works of faith. All of them have suffered in some way for their faith. And a book could be written on every one. And every one could have a room in the hall of faith and we could all go in and study their lives and read the book of their life. And life would be too short to do that. Just as one sermon is too short to do that. We could do a series of sermons on this, of course. But we could look upon what Paul says here as sermon titles. Sermon titles on, on six people that he names. And then sermon titles on their, their, their deeds of faith. Those who quenched the violence. Those who escaped. Those who were made strong out of weakness. Those who waxed valiant in faith. They're all labels on the door, you see. Everyone's a label on the door. Go on in. Study the saints who did all of these things. Study the saints who were tortured. There's a room tortured. There's a room sheepskins and goatskins in the desert. There's a room with that title on. Go on in and study them. And there's much in church history about them too. These are titles for sermons. Titles for lectures in church history that could last us months, if not years. Paul's just giving us a taste. Go on in and study yourself. And you do that, child of God. I encourage you to study the lives of the saints. Now, we know that the early church, the first five centuries particularly, they were big into the reports of the saints. They loved to study the saints and to keep the records, especially of the early Christian martyrs. In fact, the love for the saints of the old warriors of faith, it went a little too far. And it became a kind of a cult. And they collected the relics of the saints and all the mementos of the saints. And they began to enshrine them in the churches. And then they began to look at them as objects of holiness that had healing powers and this and that and the other. It went a wee bit too far. Paul doesn't lead us that far. He doesn't lead us to worship the saints. He doesn't lead us to think that their, their relics and their bones have powers of holiness. There's not a word of that here in Hebrews 11. But he wants us to study their lives. To remember their names and their deeds. Their sufferings. And especially to imitate them. And to have the same faith as them. So we don't encourage saint worship. 
But we do encourage saint studies, the studies of the saints. We do encourage especially the study of the saints in the Bible, but also the study of the saints in Christian biography and in church history. It's a great challenge to us to always go into the hall of faith. It encourages us. So do that. That's what Paul is saying here then as he brings us out of this chapter. There's so many more. They're innumerable. I'm flying out the exit door, but there's this door, that door, that door, the other door, into these other halls. Go on in. Child of God, you study the personalities of the Bible prayerfully. And you read Christian biography. And it'll change you. It'll encourage you. And you'll feel surrounded by these, as Paul tells us, great cloud of witnesses. And that'll encourage us. We're just a wee small congregation. We can get downcast and depressed. We can think we're on our own. But we're not. A great cloud of witnesses surround us. This is what Paul is saying. So don't be discouraged. The Lord is here. And we are together. And we encourage ourselves in the hall of faith. And then the second thing that I think we could draw from this concluding passage is that in every era of history, God has his witnesses of faith. He has believers in every age, every generation, every century, every decade, every year, every month, every day. He has his witnesses somewhere in the world. He never leaves himself without his witnesses. The earth is never bereft of the church. Not even in the darkest times. And that's what particularly Paul is bringing out here. Even in the darkest times. There are these witnesses of faith. There are these believers. You see the world is a place of great tribulation. And the tribulation has been greater in some ages than in other ages. But however great the tribulation, there are always these believers who come out of it, who have been in it. These witnesses. It's like the cosmos. The cosmos is so dark. It's mostly darkness. But there are always these stars. However dark. Look in any part of the cosmos. Oh, maybe that's a a place without stars there, that darkness there. But no, there's, there's even stars there. And so in this age of church history, there have been dark times when there doesn't seem to have been any stars. But yes, there are there. They can be found somewhere. He always has his stars, however dark the age. Paul is saying that. These are they who came out of great tribulation and they're of all nations and kindreds, and they're red with robes. Remember Revelation 7? They come out of the darkest times. And then, whenever Paul is describing their deeds here, you can see that they were dark times, because they had to contend with lions, the mouths of lions. And then there was violence. Talks about violence, quenching the violence. And then they had to face the age of the sword. And then there were the aliens, the armies of the aliens that opposed them. So you can see Paul is telling us they're in dark times. 
There are times when there are aliens overrunning them. There are times whenever there are lions surrounding them, trying to devour them. There are times when they're thrown into the fire of violence. There are times when they have to go into the desert and hide, into the caves and hide. Those are not times of revival and blessing and everybody's being saved. No, they're the times of apostasy, the times of darkness, the times of difficulty. Even then, there are these witnesses of faith in the midst of all of that. They won't accept deliverance. They'd rather be slain and die than to accept deliverance, than to accept the sins of the Lamb. You have to worship Caesar or you'll die. Well, we'll die. You'll have to accept same-sex marriage and you'll have to marry them too or you'll die. Well, we'll die. The age of darkness, but God will always have his witnesses. And this is what Paul is saying. In the darkest of times. And it's proved in those first four names. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jetha. Those first four names that he mentions. Because they're judges. And the book of Judges, Paul doesn't pass by. Judges is a depressing book in many ways. Some of the most awful deeds ever done in Israel are in the book of Judges. The book of Judges describes an age where everybody, and this is the people of God, everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. A liberal age. An age where they don't worry about God and don't worry about the law of God. An age whenever God sends in the enemies to overrun his people in the apostasy and in the darkness to chasten them. But even then, God has his stars, his deliverers, his saviors that he raises up. This is what Paul is saying. The darkest times. He always has a man here or there. Or whatever. Preaching the truth. Witnessing for the truth. You remember that age is coming to an end. In the sons of Eli. And Samuel he's the last judge. And you remember how the sons of Eli. What they were like. How wicked. Right at the tabernacle. Uncleanness at the door of the tabernacle. People were disgusted with the offerings because of what the priests were doing. And the priests were sons of Belial. The apostasy was rife. The darkness was great. And yet Paul, he finds these stars, including Samuel, shining out of it all. God will always have his witnesses, even in the darkest times. Antichrist will arise. Babylon will be built. And there'll be great opposition and the saints will go through other times of persecution. But there'll be stars burning brightly. Men and women of faith. This is what Paul is saying. So feel the honour of being in difficult times, people of God. Oh, we would love to live in the times of revival in Whitfield and Wesley. The times of the growth of Presbyterianism in Scotland. The times when churches are being built up here and there and yonder and established. A half a dozen in the cities of Scotland here and there flying up because the people are flocking out to hear the gospel. We'd love to live in times like that. But now we're in the times where they're closing churches and they're shutting and they're becoming carpet warehouses and personal homes and bed and breakfast places that you can go and visit and you can stay a night in what was a great historic building wherein people were converted. We're in a dark time. But it's an honour to be a light in a dark night. So don't be discouraged. 
that you're just a handful. Don't be discouraged that you're just a few. You're shining for the Lord. So be encouraged that there are around you, most of them invisible, the great cloud of witnesses, and stand for God. However dark the day and the era in which we find ourselves. The third thing is, faith is always tested. As Peter said, the trial of your faith. And then he went on to say, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So faith is tried. And this is what Paul is showing us here. We already knew that. Noah's faith was tried. Abel's faith was tried. Abraham's faith was tried, greatly tried. We know all about that. And now he's telling us it's the same for every saint. They quenched the violence of fire. They were weak. They faced the edge of the sword. They stopped the mouths of lions. They had the armies of the aliens. They wouldn't accept deliverance. They were tortured. They were mocked. They were scourged. They had bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were slain. They had to go out into the wilderness and hide. And they wandered about in the mountains and in the caves. What's that? Trials of faith. The faith that is of God is always tried. God allows it to be tried. And the devil is always attacking it. And so the child of God never has ease in this world. There'll always be a battle. There'll always be some trial come to our faith. There'll always be something to face. And God allows it. He allows it for many reasons, which really we can't go into this morning, but I can just list you maybe some reasons. One is certainly to sift the faith, to blow away the chaff faith, the faith that isn't true, that isn't real. But once you get all these trials, they're all the way off. They don't stand about. But the true faith remains. It goes through the fire and remains. It comes out even better in actual fact. God tries our faith to sift. God tries our faith to test it so that we know how weak our faith is and, and how weak we are. Because whenever these trials come, we're not strong and unshaken. And, no, we move about and we're shaken and we feel it. We feel the weakness. And so the Lord is telling us, you see how weak your faith is? And how it's me that you need and not just faith. You need me and not just faith. It makes us dependent on the Lord. And we don't think so much about faith. We just think about how weak we are and how much we need the Lord. This is part of the trials of our faith. So we'll depend on the Lord and not even think about our faith. Just Him. And then it's to make our faith grow because that's how faith grows. I mean, whenever you build a bigger church, what do you do? You have to pull down the old church, don't you? And then you build it up. You want to build a better wall, what do you have to do? Well, you have to pull the wall down, clear all the way, and then build a bigger one. And that's what the Lord does. He he sends these things that knock us down and knock our faith down and fill us with doubts and then, then he builds us up again. A stronger wall. stronger building. But another reason why he sends us these trials is that's how we glorify God. Aren't you sometimes amazed at the saints what all they go through? How they suffered this and that and this loss and all that sickness and you wonder how they go on. And you're just amazed. 
And you realize that it's God. It's the glory of God. They're glorifying God in the fire. They're glorifying God in the furnace. So that's another reason why God sends us these, these trials. That's the third thing then. Faith is always tested in us. But lastly, witnesses of faith for God, while sincere and true, are not always perfect. In fact, never perfect. The witnesses of faith are never perfect. They're never sinless. These four people that are named here, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and we could also say David as well, and Samuel even, but especially these four here, you, you read the book of Judges, and you will read about these people, and you will see that they had very much marred lives, these men. I mean, if we did some of the things that these men did, we would have to be under the discipline of the church. If we weren't repentant and humble because of our sins, these men had faults. They would be in danger of some serious church discipline today if they were among us. I mean, Gideon, he was a man who had 70 children, and they weren't all from one wife. He was a polygamist. As well as that, he had a concubine, also at least one. And at times you study his life, he seemed little and have little faith at all. He was always doubting, I need a sign for this, a sign for that, give me a token for this and a token for the other. He's always looking for signs. He doesn't seem to have great faith at all in what God says. And then sometimes he seemed to lack courage and was cowardly. And then look at Barak. In fact, we wonder if he is a judge at all. It's Deborah who is the, is the judge, it seems. She's the one who has the faith. And Paul doesn't even mention her here. And he puts in Barak. We would have left out Barak and we would have put in Deborah. But no, the Holy Spirit puts in Barak. Who says, I won't go to fight unless Deborah goes with me. So here's weakness of faith. In a chapter of faith. Here's failing. He takes second place to Deborah. And then Samson, I hardly need to tell you of all his fleshly accesses with Delilah and others. And as for Jephthah, he is known for his rash vow and his fierce and cruel wrath against his brethren in the tribe of Ephraim. All these faults. Very imperfect men. And yet they had faith. Because the Holy Spirit says they had faith. They had deeds of faith. Aside from all of that. They were sincere and genuine. Aside from all of that. So this this teaches us. That none of the saints are perfect. That's why Paul brings the book of Judges in here. And these four people. All have faults and failings. The best of saints come short of the glory of God. All of us do. Every one of us yet, even as the redeemed people of God, we still know in our own minds there's none righteous, no, not one. But they had faith, saving faith. But imperfect faith. None of them are the chief pilgrim, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who had perfect faith. 
He's the only one who was thoughtless and sinless. Who we can look on to endlessly. And never be discouraged with a speck of fault. But we always remember these men had faults. These men, you know, if you had a went to them and said, you know, Paul's writing a hall of faith. Samson would have said, and Gideon would have said, and Bart would have said, and Jephthah would have said, I'll never be in it. I'll never be in it. Every one of them would have said it. And you would say it too, wouldn't you? We all would say it too. I wouldn't be in it. I wouldn't deserve to be in it. I see all my faults. I see all my failures. How would I ever get into the hall of faith? It's true of us all, isn't it, brethren and sisters? It is. We've all sinned. We've all failed. We've all backslidden. But this teaches us that believers can have true faith, saving faith, the most excellent faith of the gospel, and yet have many and even great infirmities. And sometimes even, even sinful infirmities. These people are not in Hebrews 11 because they are perfect. No. They're not in Hebrews 11 because they are sinless. Even as Noah, Abram, and Moses, and all the same, none of them were sinless. Marred, imperfect, faltering, failing. Yes, they had good works. But sadly, they also had bad works. Their works didn't save them. And I sometimes think that a bad work outweighs multitudes and multitudes of good works. And they had plenty of bad works. And yet they're in here. But they're not in here because of their works. Although we do see their works of faith. But they're in here because they had faith in Christ. They had faith in the Lord. They had dependence on his grace. They sought the forgiveness of their sins through his blood. They repented of their feelings and faults. And they were truly bowed down with humility. Before their Lord and Savior. Because of it. They had faith. True faith. They were saved by grace. Their faith. Faltering as it was. Was in the right person. In their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they maintained faith in Christ. And as Paul said. They all died in faith. They all died in faith in Christ. None of them trusting on their works. But believing as Abraham did in the Lord. And the righteousness was imputed to them. Through grace. And so we see here that they were justified by faith alone. Even when their sanctification and their works were all very imperfect and went up and down. Their justification didn't go up and down. Because of their faith in Christ they were justified freely in the grace of God. And they're in this chapter. And you would be too. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul in this chapter does not dwell on the faults of the saints. We know that. But on those excellencies of their faith. And the Lord is like that, you know. 
so gracious. In his marvelous grace, not dwelling on our faults, not dwelling on our sins and our failures, but in his marvelous grace and his acceptance of us in Jesus Christ, delighting in our good deeds, rejoicing in true acts and works of faith that bring him glory. He magnifies them and he hides the faults. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many times he says, I turned away my wrath from them. Many times. And he still does. So the Lord does not extinguish our light because we fall. No, a bruised reed he does not break. A smoking Blax he does not quench, as obnoxious as smoke is to him, but he knows there's fire there, there's heat there somewhere, and he encourages that. And through the ministry of the word, he fans that in his people, all the while supplying his Holy Spirit, that he may blow it into a, a pure fire again. Oh, how many times ought we have to be put out? as smoking flax. And yet he did not. He breathed on us and allowed us to continue in his grace to be a burning fire for him. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we delight to preach and proclaim. He's patient with the saints in every age and he encourages those that fall. Oh, strengthen your weak hands, he says. Confirm the feeble knees. To those that are of a fearful heart and timid because of their falls, he says, don't be afraid. Fear not. Be strong. He'd feed his flock like a shepherd. He'd gather all the lambs and all the feeble and all the infirm of his arms. They that are weak and faint. What does the Bible say? He giveth to them power. Out of weakness, it says, made strong. He does that. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. And what can I say, fellow Christian men? Don't let your failures and fallings depress you and defeat you. Humbly repent. And confess your sins. Don't despair. Grieve them. Yes. Repent of them. Yes. Turn from them. Yes. Live the life that is contrary to them. Yes. But don't let the devil's roar. The accuser's roar. Frighten you. Or drive you to despair. You have to shut the mouths of the lion. That's what faith does. There's a lion in this chapter. Do you notice that? There's a lion in this chapter. There's an accuser. There's an adversary in this chapter. His mouth is shut. There's no accuser. Blah, blah, blah in this chapter. Speaking out all the faults of the saints. The accuser's mouth is shut. Out of this chapter, the accuser has been kept out. And there's not a, a wicked deed, not a fall, not a fault, not a failure. That is mentioned by his mouth. And the Holy Spirit is silent on them. Only recording the deeds of righteous faith. So child of God. 
the accuser of the brethren is defeated and his mouth has been shut. Have the faith to at least believe in the grace of your Savior Jesus Christ. And go on and live the Christian life with faith. Trusting him. Repenting of your sins and confessing them. And imploring him more and more for grace to overcome and to conquer. And so our faults must not prevent us keeping on believing in Jesus Christ. Keeping on looking to him. We are in Christ. We are justified by faith. We desire to be holy and sinless. That is true. And we press toward the mark of that. We continue to daily endeavor sanctification through his grace. And one day we shall be perfectly glorified. But until then, we have to battle our faults and failures. And through faith overcome them. Even as we must overcome the world and the devil. May Christ give us his grace to so war.